Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deepest Signal Shortcast, the home of all things talent assessment, tech, and employee development. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Nikita Mikhailov. Nikita is not only one of the world's leading practitioners in personality and cognitive ability assessment, advising and coaching Fortune 500 companies, he is also an online influencer within the space. If you're on LinkedIn, I'm sure you'd have seen Nikita's name and the many events that your organizers frequently pop up. His extensive contributions to our community are all in service of upskilling the world in psychometrics. Alongside Nikita, I'm also joined with my colleague, Dave Winsborough. Nikita, Dave, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having us. And uh, well, I speak on behalf of uh, Dave and myself. Well, all of a sudden, it's not that I use a royal we, just saying that they're a little bit too megalomaniac, even for my liking. <laughs> hey, a royal we, there's nothing wrong in that, that's for sure. If it's a royal we, one of us is going to exit. <laughs> Um, yeah, maybe. Maybe, you know, psychometrics could have played a role in, uh, you know, building a more functional royal family. I don't know. <laughs> well, that escalated quickly, all I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> we just we just jumped straight into the, uh, into the difficult questions, Nikita. But, um, you know, let's start with a little bit about what you do and your, and your role within this community. So, you know, when we spoke before, you mentioned that your 2021 mission is uh, to upskill the world in psychometrics and assessment. Tell us a little bit more about like why that's the case. Why have you made that your mission? Well, after spending 10 years working in the world of psychometrics, spilling a lot of beer on all sorts of debates versus type versus straight, and is there a dark side? Probably. Uh, but uh, I came to realize a few things. One, it's all the same elephant. So, you know, there's this not proverb, but meme. I don't know, how did they call the image before memes with shared cultural significance? Uh, all these blindfolded people touching the same elephant and one goes, ooh, the trunk is soft, it's soft. And somebody's stretching the floor, it's hard. And the whole thing's they're touching the different animal, but it's all the same freaking elements. They just don't see it. And I think that when it comes to EQ, dark side, trait, type, colors, you know, whatever, Enneagram, uh, it's all different perspectives on the same elephant. It's not either or, it's just different angles. And this elephant is a phenomenon of individual differences. What this phenomenon is, nobody quite knows. It's probably a cacophony of all sorts of stuff like genetics, upbringing, you know, television pressure and the video games changes your personality. I don't know, let's find out. But it could be all sorts of huge amount of variables which are interconnected, but we're all looking at the same elephant. So there's no need to argue of trait versus type. It's it's and mm -hmm. if you have a very extreme personality, high and extroversion, low introvert, E applies really well to you. If you're high introvert, low extrovert, I, great. If you're in the middle, trait is really good for looking at that. Brilliant. It's trait and type. That's sorted. EQ is more about self-regulation and it's fascinating that a lot of EQ tools are negatively correlated with neuroticism and the negatively and positively agreeable in the next version. So other measuring just how happy you are, frankly, I think a well-functioning neurotic is actually potentially skilled more in emotional intelligence because we can know how darkness feels like and manage this. I mean, I think that one of the consequences of having trait and type and all these descriptions has been the emergence of what I'll call the California phenomenon. And that is that there is an ideal or that there is, um, you know, this is what a beautiful person looks like. Uh, and uh, especially in the world of business, that has driven a kind of cloning um, uh, mentality through through the psychometric industry. 
I know. It's like, are you conscientious, low neuroticism and high extrovert? Oh, you're a leader. And then it's like, why do we have so many assholes at top level positions? And it's like, well, maybe who are resistant to change and think they're right. Well, maybe if we hired a few more neurotics, maybe they would be, we would need so many classes on humbleness. Yeah. Uh, where a speaker stands on stage, talks about the importance of being humble and waits for the applause and don't really see the irony in the whole situation. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but talking about this, I, I think, let, let's say, for example, I mean, the pandemic is an awful thing. It is. But one of the things it has shown that neuroticism has increased. Now, people diss neuroticism quite a bit. And I think it's quite misunderstood. I think we're being neurotic about neuroticism to a large extent. But basically, it's propensity for negative emotional affect and, you know, seeing risk and things. Quite useful things. As Hogan says, our more contempt ancestors get eaten. I tend to agree with him on that. And But basically, I was talking with one of fellow practitioners and they said, you know, neuroticism is an essential piece to empathy. And I was like, what? Well, how can you empathize to something yeah. if you don't know how negative feelings exactly. feel like regularly? And considering that neuroticism is going up in the population, I think now is a real uh, real opportunity for leaders to be more humble, more empathetic than ever before. Because right now we actually have much more material to work with uh-huh. as a result of the pandemic and increased levels of neuroticism than we did before when we just said you need empathy and humbleness. But now we have this entity that we can leverage a little yeah. bit more in conversations. And, and I think it's, and to that point, it's much easier to, to talk about our neuroticism. And we you, I will use that word broadly just to kind of talk about, you know, our inner states, our feelings, how stressed we are, how anxious we are, because we've all gone through this uh, traumatic experience. And if we aren't, we I know just speaking to my friends that we're all much more willing to kind of share about actually how we're feeling. I know in the workplace, people are feeling more comfortable doing such a thing as well. It's how can we capitalize on that to build, you know, more awareness, more uh, kind of honest, neutral conversations about, you know, ourselves, how we like to work, how we feel, how we react to things. If we can't do it now, like when else are we going to do it? This is kind of like a a great opportunity for one of a, you know, not to uh, take away from the severity of the issue, but it's a great opportunity to try to do things differently and to kind of reset the ways that, you know, we have worked and kind of just been sleepwalking into over the last 20, 30 years. I know, exactly. It's uh, People talk a lot about high performance, like find your high performance employees. It's like, at what cost it freaking comes to those people? You know, you work with high performance and recently I discovered a thing called birthday toast. It's basically parents, um, it's a term in the professional services that once your kid's birthday, that, right, on the work day, the only time you get to celebrate with them is at breakfast. So you have a candle, a cake with a candle, it's birthday toast. Because you're not going to be back in the evening for their birthday. And you might only have pictures of your kids' birthdays when they're in their pajamas. Because you just don't see them. But hey, you're hitting those targets and all of this. Because one of the dark sides of conscientiousness is that you can do stuff you don't like for extended periods of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And therefore, you know, you have a lot of willpower. And uh, and then you're rewarded and put through the treadmill. And then when you are close to retiring, you can't remember what you're actually interested in life outside of work. And do we select for this? You know, is this high performance at what cost? We're going to give them a mental health coach when their marriage disintegrates once again. But don't worry, their colleagues said when they had their difficulties with marriage, they opened up to their colleague because we need to talk about mental health. You know what their colleagues told them? Is that your first marriage? And they were like, yeah, don't worry. The second wedding is cheaper. Yeah, I mean, you make a very good point. It's this idea that 
today, to your point, this, Cali this California effect where certain traits are more desirable, we select and we enhance them. And, you know, yes, they are more productive, quote unquote, but as you say, at what cost? And does that really drive uh, the growth, the innovation, the change uh, that organizations need and also create the environments that make good employee experiences? I think ultimately what we need to understand, in my opinion, is like this one-size-fits-all approach for assessment, for development, for what leadership or high potential looks like just fundamentally doesn't work. Yes, the studies show low, uh, low neuroticism, high conscientiousness are like, you know, top predictors, but that's a generalization. Let's think a bit more locally. We have the, the means and technologies and tools to be a bit more specific and personalized now in how we think about these data points. Nikita, I'm, I'm interested in whether or not you have a view about the ethics of the psychometric industry and uh, you know whether, whether or not enough attention has been paid to long-term consequences of, um, of selection regimes. Yeah, sure, I can answer that <laughs> in one sentence. I think there's two key things. There's personality science and there's psychometric publishers. So I think with personality science, it's, it's as scientific as we can get. I mean, don't get me wrong. My dad's a professor of applied mathematics and physics. I have have no illusions that psychology is a real science. He makes sure that I know this pretty much every conversation. Thanks, dad. But uh, the key thing is that we try to make it a science. And I think personality psychology is as scientific as psychology gets in many ways. I think this is one of the key examples. And I mean, the fact we have the same model we talk about as a reference point, that's amazing. But there's also psychometric publishers which are run for profit. And they're commercial organizations. And this is one of the key things that, uh, going back to Reese's point uh, about why upskills the world in psychometrics. Like, I love psychometrics. I think they're just phenomenal things because we're trying to grasp the concept of ourselves in a scientific way. It's yeah. like, you know, we try to measure it as scientifically as possible, but we don't really know what we're measuring. Mm -hmm. So, you know, <laughs> that's kind of a fun little dichotomy there. And, uh, uh, and but what's really cool with this is that psychometric publishers, they release a product. So for me, one of the questions, if your personality model is from the, let's say, the first half of the 20th century, how did it keep intact with science? I mean, for example, I think Myers-Briggs does a fantastic job of trying to keep Myers-Briggs as scientific as possible. And I know like some people criticize it, but I think it's a phenomenal instrument. And I think it's a phenomenon, you know, it's a, it's a tool developed by university educated mother and daughter team in their forties. No, in the forties, not in their, were they in the forties? I don't know, but in the forties, as far as a decade. And it's the most successful psychometric ever. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now that yeah, in yeah. itself is just like, wow. And uh, like criticizing psychometric uh, MBTI is just like, I think there's so much more to appreciate and learn from it, like from its success. Yeah. And uh, rather than criticize it. And why do people like it? You know, is it the quality of the narrative? Is it the balance of graphical? Or do we think more about, though it's not like extrovert, introvert, because it's more nuanced than that, as MBTI practitioners will tell you, I'm not one of them. But I think that it's also maybe our brain works that way. Maybe mm -hmm. we remember more extreme things about personality of other people. Yep. Or ourselves. Like, I love to, when in a debrief session, people completed MBTI several times, I go, which letters change, which stays the same? And which yeah, ones yeah. you remember? Yeah. And it's usually yeah. the highest preference. And like, why do you think they change? It's much more fun to be playful with this and respectful mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. its place in our industry and history. 
So personality science, the academic way, it hopefully communicates with psychometric publishers. But one of the issues I have with psychometrics is less with models and offers of CPD. My issue is that a lot of psychometric publishers refer to their practitioners as users, right? Mm-hmm. Which is quite passive, you know, users. So it's, like, it's like drug dealing, actually. Well, and the first one is always free, right, Dave? Yeah. And uh, so <laughs> here's a try a free psychometric. But also other organizations use that test, <laughs> that, yep. that pitch, right? But um, the key thing is that it's not treating uh, practitioners as professionals who want to develop. And usually psychometric publishers only provide any CPD in their specific tool. Mm-hmm. So for example, uh, I was working at an organization and once I created a workshop with a, a competitive product because I knew that a lot of our practitioners were using the competitor product with our product. Mm-hmm. And instead of sitting on the fence, it's like, no, we should use more of our products. I just created an event. It was very well attended, like 100 people. I was only one year into the industry, really. And everybody was looking at me like a heretic. And I couldn't understand why. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, well, our practitioners use both. Shouldn't, shouldn't we create events for them to learn from each other? Because, you know, they'll buy both of our products. Everybody wins. Yeah. And uh, like, yeah, I, I'm... Yeah, there's many reasons why I'm self-employed. Anyway, but that's a different story. Uh, but uh, And we just look upon like competitors, not offer of CPD. And because of market forces, most psychometric qualifications come down to three days. Mm-hmm. It always amazed me. Like there's a lot of people who come from South Africa who are pissed off when they land in UK. Because in order for, in South Africa to register as a registered psychometrician, you need like a BSc, master's, six months internship. And after this, you can register with a health professional council and their psychology body. In UK, you need to attend a three-day course, mm-hmm. which is registered with the BPS, and then you can be a registered psychometrician. So when people come from South Africa, they go, what? I spent six years, six months in unpaid internship to call myself a psychometrician. And here, people attend the three-day course online and they get the same level of recognition by a professional body representing psychologists within this country. What is this magic? Maybe yeah, they don't yeah. use the words magic, they use explicit language, but I'm not sure about the, I'm the etiquette of this podcast. In person. <laughs> but uh, let's sure. call it magic. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I, I, can, I can guess what you're saying in turn, in, yeah. in, instead Oof. of magic. But I think, right. I, well, I think, like Nikita, like you touched on a few good points. Like one, um, so going back to the MBTI, like we can discuss the, the, the lack of scientific rigor uh, behind that tool. Um, but the fact that it is the most popular assessment is undeniable, right? As you say, like people love the assessment. People love to kind of get their four letters. They post it on their Twitter profiles or whatever. Why is that? And it's fundamentally because they've made understanding yourself easy, intuitive, and something you can actually have a conversation about. Whereas even if that insight is coming from an unscientific or, you know, a a lack of a data-driven place, that's kind of beside the point here. People are actively engaging with that tool to talk about themselves, how they're similar, how are they different, you know, what that actually means. I think there is this huge disconnect with assessment that we've made it so overly complicated in the pursuit of the science and absolutely forgot the individual experience, the person that is sitting there completing the assessment and looking at the report. That disconnect is huge and has ultimately got us to this point where tools like MBTI, Enneagram, and so on, which are unscientific, still are highly popular, 
because they put the user first. And I think that's the biggest trick that we've missed as uh, you know, data-driven practitioners, psychometricians, mm-hmm. is thinking about the end user, the person at the end of this assessment. What are they going through? What are they experiencing? Are we meeting them where they are? Absolutely, usability, because I mean, and as far as MBTI is concerned, I do think it's scientific. I think I'm going to be a little bit rebellious here, but I'm going to say it because the publisher is doing research. They're doing the best they can with the model they have. And they're trying to apply scientific rigor. They're publishing peer-reviewed papers. They're publishing their correlations. And they're doing a lot of interesting stuff. Like the amount of research they do, you know, whenever there's something that comes up, they have a research study, they publish it. And I think that's pretty great. And this is going back to Dave's point about ethics. You have a lot of data companies which do selection, which don't publish zilch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can't get, it's like water from a stone. They go, it's AI, it's machine learning, deal with it. Trust us. Yeah. And that's what makes me far more worried about ethics. Like, you know, it's like, are you publishing research? which is peer-reviewed, are other universities publishing research on your assessments? Mm -hmm. And it's more of a scientific rigor that is applied even after the tool is created and how it evolves as best as it can. Mm -hmm. Because the thing is that a lot of the psychometric publishers, let's say there are several parties that can be involved. You have your practitioner base. You have their clients. You have the potential owner of the copyright to those assessment, which might not belong to the publisher of the assessment. And you have all these different stakeholders you need to be happy. Like if you change your instrument, like you update the language, et cetera, your practitioners might be up in the arms against you as a publisher because yeah. they might not be so sure presenting this to their clients. Yeah. And their clients might go for something else because the tool has changed so much. Mm. Yeah. And then, you know, are you keeping the original copywriters holders happy? Uh, I worked for a publisher and there's different level of this interaction that sometimes people don't appreciate. And they go, well, this tool is not updated as often as it should. Well, what is the political dynamics around this tool? Mm-hmm. Who owns it? You N- know, Nikita, are, that, you, are you on a mission to educate the, the, the broader public about psychometrics? You know, I, I, I'm a... Jeez, I don't know, man. <laughs> I tried to do a psychology comedy night to educate people about psychometrics, and we were talking about serial killers within the first five minutes. I didn't raise yeah. the topic. Somebody else did. I, I really struggled creating a psychology comedy night, which doesn't descend somewhere dark really quick. I don't know. Maybe it's the prevalence of neuroticism within the population. But uh, I think what's really important is, um, uh, as Reese's point and Dave's your point, about ethics and usability. I think they go hand in hand. I think there's ethics of psychometrics being used in selection, and therefore you need transparency and open openness. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there's nothing wrong with a good self-report, with a good psychological contract mm-hmm. built into it, with yeah. a bit of machine learning and the AI at the back of it to analyze and give you better items. I don't think it's either gamification or either self-report or either this. I think it's a combination of all of them. And uh, see what we can learn from each other. Then Mm. we come to usability that Reese mentioned that why some tools are more popular than others. Because ultimately, let's not have any illusions. Most people don't read their report. Most people don't read it once. And if they do read it once on one lucky night when they have trouble sleeping, uh, it's not like it's a lucky night for the report, not for the person. (laughs) I'm not advocating that. But it's great uh, that they do read it. But most want. Because ultimately, the question is, how usable is it in their life? 
Mm-hmm. And as Reese, you mentioned about overcomplication, that maybe four letters is useful enough. Yeah. yeah. For most people. And that's great. And if that publisher tries to be as scientific as possible and useful as possible, they balance this. They balance it as best as they can. Uh, you know, everybody who I encountered working in psychometrics at a certain level, they really care about this. You know, head of research, head of assessment, uh, at any psychometric publisher, they care. They, they're they deeply invested into selling psychometrics and making them better with what they have, with what they're inherited. Because <laughs> imagine if your psychometric has been running from 1950s, it was the same publisher. You're inheriting 70 years of politics, practitioners, history, and all of that to manage as a head of research. Mm. That's a really tall task. Mm. And I think those Mm. people deserve our credit and sympathy. But how we make psychometrics useful. Now, that's, I think in the 90s, psychometric missed a step. Because when I started working in psychometrics, I just caught the tail end of working with paper and pencil. So I remember working for my internship and ducking around London with a suitcase full of self-report measures. You know, you have the self-report booklet with the questions, you have the answer sheet, and you have a score sheet. So the person sits down, you can tell them not to draw on the booklet, but they still freaking draw on the booklet. It's like, now the answer sheet, man, I still need to use the booklet. And are they wipeable? I hope so. And anyway, so they fill it out, then they go out, you rip out the answer sheet, you whack it out, you mark it off the sheet, and then you take out the manual, you go to the norm group, you then you draw out the line with a ruler and and then you have your profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when psychometrics came online and they came online quite hesitantly because, you know, they're going to steal our items uh, yeah. and stuff like that. We can't put the items outside the question booklet. And I think the graphics, the graphics in most psychometrics is still the paper and pencil. Yeah. And most usability of psychometrics is still paper and pencil. Yeah. But <laughs> and they're just not keeping up with the digitals that portraits can be interactive. Yeah, yeah. You can have an app that allows you to scan each other and see how you can interact. Because yeah. the question is, as long as we increase validity, reliability, and all that good stuff as much as we can, uh, but the question is, are we focusing on what would be useful to our clients? Yeah, mm-hmm. C- and- couldn't, couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, the idea, one of the reasons that I think that MBTI has been so successful is it's created a language, which is a very simple language, but it lets me talk to you. And... I hope you understand me and I've got some insight into the way that you work. But if we if we use the language of of traits, if we if we you know thought about SHL or Hogan, then then discussing things like prudence or interpersonal sensitivity or you know some of the more esoteric descriptions that we use, it's very hard. You know, psychologists have acted as a guild that that keeps us looking like experts and users. Or, you know, the, the ordinary people who use our tools um, in the dark about the magic that we apply to them. And, and it just shouldn't be that way. It and shouldn't I think be. If we were more transparent, Dave, it would yeah. only, I think, increase the, the use and adoption of these tools um, because, yeah, it's much more transparent rather than thin as this daunting thing where you're being profiled and clinically assessed. Yeah. Rather, okay, I know how these answers are being used. I know how they're scored. I know how to use this insight I've learned about myself or someone else. Okay, there's some tangible benefit there. I'm going to start using more of them. That's ultimately, as psychometricians, I guess what we want, 
particularly those working in the psychometric industry, is to, you know, to Nikita, to your point, to sell more assessments. Or if we were just a bit more humble, more transparent, I think we would expand the pie, you know, not for ourselves, but also for the general population. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But uh, going back to Dave's point, it is also a power trip because, uh, <laughs> you know, I know something about that you don't. Yeah. Uh, and though it's based all on a self-report and there's irony there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, But to me, the way I kind of make it more playful now, after 10 years of working in this, geez, when I try to do comedy night on psychometrics, I can only come up with half an hour of material out of 10 years of working with it anyway. <laughs> but uh, basically what happens is now when I sit down with a session, I ask the person to describe their personality first. I would yeah. say, how would you describe yourself? It exactly. doesn't matter what tool I use, you know, Hogan, Spark, you know, maybe deeper signals, little, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, but... Uh, Thank you for the plug. <laughs> oh, anytime. And uh, it doesn't matter about the tool because I treat the, the person as an expert on the self because it took me ages to realize what I'm working with is not the tool. What I'm working with is a self-construct of the individual yeah, yeah, they have inside yeah. their head. Yeah. And the tool is a lens on this, yes, but yeah, not the other way around. And that's fundamentally the mistake that we make, right? Is that we don't appreciate, uh, we put the cart before the horse. We try to fit people into the profile that has been generated from this assessment rather than say, tell us how you see yourself. How do you think you're doing? How do you think you show up? And then use that as a jumping off point. I mean, this this was, it's really interesting, isn't it? You know, um, you know, Kelly's personal construct theory from the, you know, 50s and 60s started from that view that it's very hard, you know, people have very idiosyncratic structures in inside their heads about how they see other people or how they see a particular, how they see parts of themselves. Um, and Kelly Kelly's um, approach was to try and bring that out in a, in a structured way so that you could, uh, you could talk about it. It's just it's yeah. a shame, you know, that um that the psychometricians aren't taught more about some of the interesting history of our field. Mm. But how could you be taught that in three days? Yeah, exactly. Well you can't. No. You can just develop the bare minimum. Like yeah. for example, uh well, Peter Saville released his book, uh Testing Times, really interesting. I, I loved reading it because it could be like a story from his childhood, and then he goes to a seven-page critical review of 16 PF, just like yeah. that. And it's just like, uh, it's uh, it's an insight into his mind. Uh, yeah, I bet. Yeah. And this is brilliant, so you can learn from history. Recently, I learned from a documentary on Ramdas and Timothy Leary. It's called wow. Dying to Know. It's brilliant, yeah, by the way. Yeah. My, the best example of social desirability. So Timothy created an ass- one of his personality assessments, you know, the first circumplex, man's need for love and man's needs for power, all yeah. that stuff. He created it. A tool then with Richard Alpert that were kicked out of Harvard because they gave psilocybin to an undergrad rather than the postgrad that they had permission to back in the 60s. And But then Timothy was caught with an illicit substance, let me say, and sentenced guilty. And in that particular state, at that particular time, people after being sentenced were given a psychometric to identify how dangerous it was to society, to identify the level of security to go to prison. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, Timothy got given his own test. <laughs> the, 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 and he gamed it. So he went to the lowest security prison and then ident- and managed to escape to South America with That's the help right. of the Water Underground and the Black Panthers. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a story. <laughs> <laughs> Psychometrics history is pretty interesting, I guess, then. It's not all Costin McRae. <laughs> well, well, Costin McRae are also interesting in their own right. But Dave, do you have any favorite anecdotes from the history of our wonderful profession? 
Uh, well, uh, you know, I, I was lucky to spend time with Bob Hogan and hearing Bob Hogan talk about his interaction with Walter Michel uh, at one of the Nebraska Symposia. And Hogan was so incensed by Michelle's, um, you know, kind of disbelief in, in interior structures that he he made Walter Michelle cry at breakfast. And Walter Michelle, they were snowed in or something. It's a complicated story, but they were snowed in. Walter Michelle couldn't get away and spent the rest of the rest of the thing scuttling out of the room whenever Bob Hogan came in. Funny. Wow. So did after this, Michelle come up with his theory about the chain of thought? Uh, you know, what if scenarios? Yeah, it must have been. That's right. What if Bob Hogan catches me and punches me in the face? Yeah. Well, I don't know, but being snowed in with Bob Hogan in the same hotel and Hogan <laughs> that cry, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So just switching gears a little bit uh, away from psychometrics um, and a wondrous history. Nikita, I want to just dive into a little bit about, you know, the work that you do to build this community, right? It seems to be the extension of the things we've just been discussing around making it more accessible, more intrusive and so on. Like, mm-hmm. How do you fill that gap? Because I think there's a lot of bullshit in our space. There's a lot of kind of hustlers trying to create events only to sell more things. What's your motivation to build that community? And what advice do you have for doing it in an authentic and an organic way? See, man, I wish I had the conscientiousness to sell stuff based on my events. But by the time I'm finished organizing them, I'm too tired to promote anything. From my perspective, the key thing is, is, Language, go into psycholexical approach. How do you talk about, let's say, practitioners, even of other tools? Do you talk to them about fellow colleagues? Like that's the key thing that sometimes, you know, oh, you use this assessment. Oh, I don't like it. I'm more superior than you. It's a power trip. Mm -hmm. Or do you you go, okay, we're all blindfolded. We don't really know what the hell we're doing, but we're doing our best. And, you know, how how are you doing? You know, what, what we can learn from each other. So the thing is of see, seeing ourselves, you know, uh, in Russian, there's an expl- expression called the colleague on the factory floor. Yeah. And yeah. seeing each other as colleagues, mm-hmm. doesn't matter what tools we use. And this has been the core ethos. Like, for example, I don't like people who criticize other people's products. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it's too easy. Yeah. It's far more, it's much more complicated to understand the nuances and why do people use it, et cetera. And it's far more interesting as well. And um, just organizing events that are interesting to everybody. So for example, one of the things that I really enjoyed currently organizing, and I'm really proud of this, is that on the 26th, again, you'll need to use your imagination, Reese, what I'm going to mean by a particular word, is going to be called, what the bleep are we measuring when it comes to personality? <laughs> Uh, because we had a few conversations, uh, we were just colleagues and, you know, it's like gamification, self-report, uh, NLPs, uh, natural language processing, not the neural language programming, you know, great. Come up with an acronym, which is also used for yeah. something else. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we were thinking, okay, are we measuring the same thing? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the events, let's say on gamification, they will just have experts in gamification talking about gamification, about gamification. Self-report, we're going to talk about self-report. So we got four speakers, one uh, data analytics from IBM, one uh, founder of a uh, self-report assessment company, Mm -hmm. one person who's the head of science of a gamification company, and one person who is correlating performance on psychometrics with assessment centers. So we got these four people, 
we're going to have a panel discussion from one to two, and then no a presentation. Like, they're going to present what's really hot in their industry, and from two to three, we're just going to have a discussion with everybody else, and we're going to hopefully record it and put it on YouTube if everybody's happy. Because the thing is, it's about creating such events, which are people learn from each other, and they we get to discuss as fellow colleagues rather than you know. Otherwise, we go with um, also California, but cults. I feel yep. psychometrics can be quite cultish. One hundred percent, one hundred. Like, oh, the, the founder had the wisdom, uh, divine intervention. They understood what human nature is. It's like no idea. Sometimes most psychometrics is like a projection of somebody else's view on humanity, rather than. Oh, that is, well, the, yeah, that is a hundred percent true. A hundred percent true. I think Freud was right. 100%. And it's like, you know, when we talk about AI and all these other innovations, particular, you know, just because you mentioned gamification, you know, digital interviews and all that kind of stuff that's being used. AI is like, you know, they're held up as a solution to, you know, making more efficiencies, understanding people better, whatever. It's only going to work in that exact same kind of way. It's a projection of, you know, the biases, the perspectives, or whatever, yeah. whoever is collecting that data, designing the algorithm, and then training it. I think that's one thing that, you know, just to circle back, it's to, you know, make that AI not be such a black box. And it's not this like monolithic technology that we can't peer into and it just works. It's like, no, actually we can tune it, we can understand it. And I think the sooner that we, as practitioners, maybe using, selling, developing AI-based tools is to actually communicate to, you know, HR manager or the end user that goes through one of these types of assessments actually how it works and i think if we do that we can start to have fair and more ethical ai as well right rather than this top-down hierarchical approach completely it's just the thing is that recently i attended um, i was just talking with my partner a couple of months back we need to educate people more about data ethics and then i get a message on linkedin would you like to speak at the data ethics conference and i was like god damn it's a coincidence and then i go sure the thing is, then two weeks later, go into work, et cetera, and in the morning, reminder comes up, you're speaking at 2 p.m. And I'm like, shit, uh, because I have no slides, nothing. And then I looked at, like, head of data analytics of this, head of data analytics of that, predictive analytics, and I'm, like, chief neuroticism officer. I'm just like, oh, my God, what the hell am I going to talk about? And then uh, I just thought about it. The thing is that I'm in a very fortunate position that uh, when people complete their personality assessment, in most cases, I'll debrief it with them or we'll walk through, we'll explore this together. Mm-hmm. And quite often, you know, when you make a hypothesis, oh, with your personality, you might do this. People say no, or sometimes they might tell me I'm full of shit, especially if they're low on agreeableness. And that's okay. But, you know, it's it's practical humbleness. And then I realized that a lot of people in this professions with analytics, et cetera, they present data on people to key stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And those people who they present data on can never argue with that data. They can never say you're wrong because they never are asked or presented with this. Uh So data is presented on them and they have no voice to counter this data. With the way I use psychometrics, if a client says this is wrong, gives an example, and then we explore, well, actually, why do you have such a strong emotional reaction to a piece of paper? That's far more interesting, but, and they tell me when my hypotheses are out of bounds. Mm -hmm. And that's okay because we're co-explorers, you know, it's, it's how it should be. But with data analytics, those people never get the chance to make themselves heard. I think you raise a really good point. It's like, okay, the explosion of people analytics. I think people analytics as a whole has a 
a lot of value and it's ultimately being underutilized because many of the things that you've just described, Nikita, I think we have people designing, reporting and implementing people analytic insights, but actually have very little training or appreciation of the human that represents that single data unit, right? That then is them aggregated and rolled up. I think there's an opportunity to create a more human people analytics. And that ultimately requires us to create more community, share our experiences, psychometric and you know, the theory, the understanding, the self-awareness, the uh, messiness that goes into measuring you know, psychological constructs rather than just it being treated like this uh, ground truth, which we just know it's not. You know, there's, it's about, as you say, having kind of humbleness and humility in, in our data. It doesn't take away from it. But it, you know, it helps us use it in a, in a fairer and ultimately more effective way. Absolutely, and the question comes down to in whose interest are we working? Because if we go back to like the word psychometrics, mm. it's a measurement of a psychological construct, right? But if we go to the term psychology, the original is psyche or the soul, or the divine spark of individuality within. And uh, the thing is, our is our work honoring that individuality and the subjective experience of the human condition and are we working for the benefit of the individual mm. or are we working towards corporates taking more profit by squeezing every last drop of life from that individual and uh, yeah that's that's the key thing who we're working in the interests of i really really like that uh, that distinction between um you know bringing us back to psyche and understanding an individual that's um you know makes such a difference we just don't hear it enough. Well, Nikita, I, on behalf of Deeper Signals, just wanted to thank you very much for giving us an hour of your time, um, London evening. Uh, it's been a fascinating journey, you know, through the um, our shared understanding of what psychometrics and um, our industry is. I really think we should do this again, Reese. It was a lot of fun. I think we should do it next time. 100%. With beer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So maybe uh, beer makes everything better, particularly so psychometrics. <laughs> well, how, I have a suggestion. How about we do a next one with a beer and then we release both of them at the same time? <laughs> we'll call it one with alcohol, one without. Perfect, yeah. Uh, and we'll release it at the same time. I think <laughs> that would be really fun <laughs> because I have never seen a podcast there where we release a sober and a drunk version. <laughs> and we can we can see which people uh, how many listens each one gets, right? Do people ask yeah. Yeah, first be more drunk in, and inebriated? Maybe. Yeah. This would be in itself an experiment. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Nikita, thank you again for people that are interested in learning more about you or um, attending one of your events. Where'd be the best place to uh, to go? Oh, just follow me on LinkedIn. Connect with me, and if you have any questions, just let me know. Just if you have any questions about personality happy to answer them as best as I can or point you in the direction of somebody who can because we're ultimately a friendly bunch perfect perfect thank you Nikita thank you for having me